Hello and welcome to The Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us live today on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. My guest today is Mary Lou Blakesley, a painter, environmentalist, and nature guide who's worked as a park ranger at Glacier National Park and currently leads tours in Antarctica and the Baja Peninsula. Some folks in Wellfleet may remember her around town, but for the last 20 years or so, she's been teaching people about the bears and wolves of the Arctic, the leopards, seals, and whales of the Antarctic, and the turtles and fishes of the Great Barrier Reef. Hardly content to stand behind a lectern, however, her bio tells us she's driven zodiacs through Antarctic snowstorms. I just want to tell you that I just tipped over an entire glass of water on our multi-thousand dollar equipment, but that's live radio, folks, and let me tell you more about about Mary Lou. She's driven zodiacs through the Antarctic snowstorms while dodging icebergs and penguins, brave nor'easters searching for stranded sea turtles, and kayak through the Alaskan wilderness. She's also collaborated with longtime former WOMR DJ and composer Canary Burton on what they call sound paintings, which combine original music and nature sounds. She's here with us in the studio today to talk about her work, her travels, and a multimedia presentation she'll be giving this coming Thursday, November the 2nd at 5 p.m. at Wellfleet Preservation Hall. It's entitled Antarctica and the Climate of Hope. Mary Lou Blakesley, I am so happy to see you again and welcome to WOMR. Well, thank you, Ira. It's really great to be here. And thank you for spilling the water. I thought I was going to be doing that. Oh, no, so you, that's don't have to be, you don't have to be nervous. I, I take care of everything <laughs> for great. everybody. It's just a stunt for mm-hmm. Halloween. It makes me feel much better. Thank so you. So I know you're modest and you don't like to talk about yourself, but imagine, if you will, a young person listening in and thinking, holy cow, she works in Antarctica and the Baja Peninsula. How the heck did she get off Cape Cod to do that? So... For them, not for you and for the rest of us. How the heck did you get off Cape Cod and get to do such exciting work? It was a, It's a long and twisted tale that I would never have been able to envision. It just sort of happened one step after another. So first I was teaching at the Need Collaborative right on North Pamet Road in Truro. So in the, it's a hostel in the summertime and an environmental ed center in the winter during the school season. And from there, I was looking for some summer work, and I applied to the national parks, and I got a job in Glacier Bay, which is in Alaska. And so I got to Alaska. Not not down the street. They couldn't give. They didn't give you a position <laughs> no, down the street. No, they didn't give me a position right here. Nope, that's where I applied. But I got the job in southeast Alaska, flew all the way out there. And that job, Glacier Bay is this amazing park. It's the size of the state of Connecticut and mountains and glaciers. And But m- people access it mostly by the water because southeast Alaska is very mountainous. People go kayaking there. They take their boats in. There are hikers and there are mountain climbers, but it's pretty steep terrain. So I got there, and the job was bringing people out on boats and giving them a tour of the park. 
I got to meet a lot of people who worked on vessels, a lot of people who gave people tours in various places in the world. And through that connection, one day I got a phone call and the man said, I'm needing somebody uh, to work in Antarctica because one of my people uh, suddenly got sick and is going to be gone for the first trip. And so, you know, what do you do? So I went on and on about all of my natural history information and the things that I had done and what I knew and, you know, thinking, oh, this is an amazing opportunity. And he said, what I really need (laughs) is an artist. Really? Exactly. Which is exactly what you are. (laughs) Exactly. So I said to him, could you just say that one more time? Because nobody calls you up to work and says what I really need is an artist. No, it never, never. happened to it me. It never happens. So um, what had happened is there's a, a ship at the time that had an onboard artist, which was the tradition of all early sailing vessels, right, before the advent of photography and even after photography. They had people that were drawing and painting the landscapes and making the charts for the captains as they were going to these different places so that they could remember all of the inlets. So they had a, an amazing artist who worked on board the ship, Lucia Dolores. She's uh, actually in um, Massachusetts. She does the illustrations for the Harvard Natural History Museum. She's an incredible artist. And she had wasn't able to come for the first trip, and so there I was. And I so totally fell in love with the place that I just kept going back again and again. Wow. And then from there, that that same, they're called the Lindblad Tours? So there are different companies that go down to Antarctica and around the world. So these companies aren't just Antarctica and Alaska and Baja. They go all over. And the company that I have been doing most of my work with is Lindblad Expeditions, um, expeditions.com. And that's where people can find out information. And they are partners with National Geographic. So the ships will say National Geographic, Endurance, or Explorer, et cetera. Wow. Amazing. So in preparation for our conversation today, you challenged me to connect the dots on three places that I knew nothing about. Um, And I'm going to ask you to speak about the three places and then connect the dots. So they are the Berkeley Pit in Butte, Montana, which is a mile deep abandoned copper mine full of the most toxic water that you could ever imagine, 21 different heavy metals. The Yukon River, which used to have a lot of Chinook salmon, and they're not around anymore, and the Southern Ocean, which I had to look up. I'm sorry. I'm geographically challenged. Um, It's the the ocean around Antarctica, uh, where Massive super trawlers are actually competing with whales and penguins to harvest krill. So in any way you want to talk about how these things interact. Yeah, so I was at this point in my life, I am about to be stepping out of working quite so much. And so as I do that, I just wanted to come back to this community that I have such a deep connection to and tell you all some of the stories of the places where I have been so that as you look at the world and as you think about what's happening with climate and with various issues that are happening to the environment, it 
maybe adds a couple of pixels to the overall photo that you may have of kind of what's going on in the world. So I'd, I'd love to start with the story in Butte, Montana, of the Berkeley Pit, because it's just this ongoing, amazing story. And it's not finished. It there's It's continuing on and on, but most people outside of Montana don't know about it. I did write a little story about it, but, but people don't really understand, I think, the importance of a place like this. So the Berkeley Pit is one of the largest Superfund sites in the country. And the Superfund sites are the most toxic and dangerous places that have been identified that you know need to have serious work done and that are a real threat to people. So the Berkeley Pit is an open pit. So it's this mile deep, mile wide, mile long, a little bit bigger than that, toxic sludge and water. And the water goes through the old abandoned tunnels and mines and ends up in this containment area. So um, there are two companies. There is Montana Resources and Atlantic um, Richfield that now own and try to do something with this and are responsible for trying to protect animals and people from this residue from this mining. So there is still mining that's happening there, and it was mostly for copper that this Berkeley pit ended up being created. The Rocky Mountains have amazing amounts of wildfowl that migrate during the spring and, of course, in the fall. And the Berkeley pit is water for all these birds. But the water is so toxic that if they land in it, they will be dead in the morning. So the powers that be are trying to protect the wildfowl. So they've had a number of different projects. The first was they had a skiff, and someone's job was to drive around in this water and try and scare the birds off so that they wouldn't (laughs) stay there. But then one side uh, wall of the pit sloughed off, and they were concerned that it could overturn the skiff, and it would be really dangerous for that person. So they took the people out. And then the next thing they did is they hired some of the miners to shoot rifles, not at the birds, but so that it would scare the birds and make them leave. Well, then that was concerned because it wasn't just geese that were landing there, but there were also cormorants and all kinds of, and ducks. And when they're afraid, they often dive. So it wasn't the proper solution. So a biology teacher from the local technical college got together with the miners and had them write out what kind of birds they were. Well, when they saw a duck, they would write black duck, not as a species, but as it was a black-colored duck. So she taught these miners to be birders. And they learned all the different birds and the different birds' habits for going into this pit. And so they were much better at being able to keep them from landing. Well, 2016 comes around, and there's a huge warm, 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 and then all of a sudden deep cold spell that come deep down into the country. So all of the open water is freezing except for the Berkeley pit. And one night, 20,000 snow geese show up. The people that worked there said it sounded like helicopters flying overhead. And they went down there and did everything that they could to try to get the birds off. But when your birds are migrating, they go to the end of their energy, and then they stop, and they have to rest. 
5,000 snow geese were dead by the next morning. So it was just a tragedy for everyone because of all of these plans that they had to try to keep the birds from going there. But you also have to do something with this water. So in in 2021, Mitsubishi comes by, and they say they want to take this water, process it, get the hydrogen out of it, and use it for energy for L.A., I don't know exactly what happened to that project, but it didn't happen. And now the Department of Defense and all these universities around the country are wanting to take this water and have the water part evaporate out and take the sledge for the minerals that are there and the metals that are there. And so the Department of Defense is now interested in this sludge. Let me tell people who we are. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. My guest today is Mary Lou Blakesley. She's a former Welflesian who's now, or who was, a park ranger at Glacier Bay National Park. She is currently a wildlife lecturer and tour guide in Antarctica and Mexico's Baja Peninsula. Today we're talking about a presentation she'll be giving on Thursday, November 2nd at Wellfleet's Preservation Hall. So... Sum up on <laughs> the pit. Yeah, so the Berkeley pit is this, it's this horrible, toxic thing. And then you have miners who suddenly, because of their role in involvement with this toxic sludge, have now become appreciators of the wild birds that are making their way there. And now you have all these different huge companies and, and government agencies trying to do something with this sludge to get the rare elements out of it and be able to reuse and restore that. And hopefully it would go for defense and green energy. So, you know, Okay, exhibit guess? one on the climate of hope. Yeah, okay. exhibit one on the climate of hope. Exhibit two, <laughs> the... The Chinook salmon. Chinook salmon in the Yukon River. Yeah, so the Chinook salmon in the Yukon River. Chinook salmon are also known as king salmon. So if you are a salmon eater, you would probably know king salmon because they are one of the two of the of the five species. They're one of the two prized species. So people love their king salmon. And the native people along the Yukon River um, – subsist on salmon. So they go out and they do these huge harvests, and Alaska's Alaskans can do subsistence fishing, harvesting. Mostly they put out gill nets. Um, there's a lot of trolling for uh, Chinook salmon. But the Chinook salmon numbers along the, Colomb- along the uh, Yukon River have been going down and down and down. And for the past three years, the Native people have not had enough salmon. So they have been asking other Native groups along southeast Alaska and along the coast if they would please send them some food so that they can get through the winter. So these numbers, it's an incredible depletion. So you've gone from like 43,000 fish down to maybe 11,000 fish that are making their way through this, one of the largest river systems in Alaska. So it's a huge decrease, and nobody knows the exact cause. There's probably many causes, but one of the things that is happening is that the Bering Sea is warming as temperatures are warming, and as there's more CO2 in the atmosphere, it creates uh, ocean acidification. So the ocean uh, slightly changes its chemistry, and when you have animals that have calcium carbonate shells, like little pteropods, which is one of the favorite foods of the salmon, 
the pteropods don't do as well because of the change in, in slight changes in the chemistry of the ocean due to its absorption of CO2 in the atmosphere. So this is a big deal because Alaska and salmon are almost synonymous. I mean, they're putting salmon images on the Alaska Airlines planes. You know, I mean, it is just the epitome of Alaska is salmon. And so to have the salmon stocks be threatened in this way, um, is it's just massive. And so as I was researching this, I saw that there were from 19, from 2021 uh, to 2023, because of the crash of this salmon fishery, there was a huge amount of money that was given to Alaska to because of its, it's considered a fishing disaster there. So you have all these little incremental things that happen that are far and far away. When the salmon, the king salmon, they can go out into the ocean for four years. So what happens to them once they're out there is what is the unknown. And there's a lot of money that's been put toward it and a lot of research that's happening right now trying to figure out what's going on with the king salmon and why are we seeing such reduction in numbers. So the climate of hope in this instance is the fact that suddenly somebody is taking notice and somebody is attempting to solve the problem, exactly. whereas it had just been uh, starvation for the native peoples, etc. Exactly. Okay. So let's get on to number three, and that is the Southern Ocean, which you, of course, are very familiar with because you take tours there. And if you go on YouTube, you can see these gigantic Chinese trawlers with like imitation whales. They kind of look like wind socks that they pull behind the ship. And instead of a whale mouth, which is going to eat the krill, they catch the krill. What in the world do they want with krill anyway? Yes. What They're do like, we want with krill? Yeah. So krill is a, it's a very interesting animal and it's in all of the oceans. We have it here in Alaska, in, um, off Cape Cod, off the waters, it's in Alaska. But down in the Antarctic is the largest of the krill species. So the krill there are as long as the long side of your credit card. Oh, so they're, they're almost like a shrimp. They very much look like shrimp. They have a different use of their front legs, so they use those more as a basket to sieve um, plankton, in. But they, uh, as opposed to shrimp, but very much like shrimp. And what's happened is that the krill industry, the fishery, is the largest fishery in the world right now. And no one has any idea because it's so removed and so far away. But what's happened is that you have probably seen farmed salmon for sale. What used to be that they used to use a Peruvian anchoveta to feed the salmon, but then the salmon's color was white. And people know that salmon are supposed to be salmon-colored. That's how they got their name. And so uh, there was dye that had been put into those fish early on in the fishery. Well, it was soon discovered that not only was there not enough Peruvian anchoveta to be able to feed all of these farms, but that if you went down to the Southern Ocean, so and this particular area of the waters that surround the Antarctic are the closest to South America. So the right off between South America and the tip of the peninsula and a little bit further to the east is where the largest number of the largest krill species are. So if you harvest that krill, 
you can feed that to the salmon and then the color of the krill gets infused into the salmon and the salmon's natural color of pink comes back. So you don't have to add chemicals and you don't have to add dye and it's a more natural process. And all of that seems great. It's like, why not? Because there's billions of tons of krill, so we think. But what happens is that as the sea ice that surrounds Antarctica every winter, austral winter, and then melts back by the time it's our winter and their summer, that's the overwintering habitat for this krill. And those sea ice shelves are not lasting as long and they're not as thick. So you're not getting the recruitment or the population turnover that you used to have. And so the krill numbers are going down. Add to that that in 2007, so there's a lot of cu countries, including the United States, that had been harvesting krill. And the total amount of krill that was harvested until 2007 was, let's say, about, oh, maybe it had varied from year to year, but let's say ballpark 130,000 tons for all of the countries, for all of the ships. And most of the ships are concentrated in that area that I spoke about. Well, in 2007, Norway developed new technology for their krill fishery. So instead of dragging this big net like you saw off of some of the Chinese vessels, they now have a big hose that goes down into the large swarms of krill and like a vacuum cleaner, vacuums all of the mobs of krill that swarm together into these big thick groups and, and brings them on board and flash freezes them and processes them on board. And these ships run seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And they are processing. One ship alone took 120,000 tons by itself, which was almost the entire catch of the entire fishery the year before. And now there's six of them down there. So the population of krill is crashing. And what do we use it for? Well, we use it for farmed salmon, but an increase in use is for krill oil that people take as supplements for omega-3s. And it has been proven that krill oil is no more effective than fish oil and or vegetarian substitutes for omega-3s, but it's gotten a lot of publicity because it's the biggest fishery in the world right now. So this uh, is affecting the populations of the penguins in their traditional breeding areas because there's not enough krill. It's affecting seals. And while we were down in the Antarctic uh, two years ago, we came upon the, the krill population had had a really bad year. And so in the island of South Georgia, which is about 750 miles east of South America, the fur seals were crashing and the penguins were not doing well because they weren't getting enough krill. Well, we were near the Orkney Islands, the South Orkney Islands, and there was this big wad of krill there, and there were 3,000 fin whales all together jumping over each other, sliding over each other with their mouths open, trying to feed on this one large area of krill. There were blows all around, you know, 50 and 60 at a time, in, in 360, and there within our sights were the six krill ships harvesting the krill because the marine protected area 
was off the south end of the South Orkneys, and the krill were off the north end of the north of the South Orkneys. So you have this resource that is, in, I mean, it's the largest biomass on the planet. There's an incredible amount of krill, but the krill is fluctuating. People think that it might be moving further south as those waters are warming up. Maybe it's moving towards colder waters, but the krill fishery is increasing dramatically. Why? It's because of krill oil, because people... Well, why are krill... Um, why are krill making more krill? Why, are, why is the amount of krill increasing? The amount of krill harvest is increasing. Oh, but not the amount but of krill. But not the amount of krill. As far as people can tell, because of that sea ice, primarily it's because of the warming of the oceans and the sea ice diminishment that doesn't stay as long so that the young krill don't have the time to okay. uh, produce as many okay. and survive. So we have five minutes left. Wow. Give me the climate of hope here. <laughs> Tie so, in the hope. So there are different things that are happening. And as people learn about these things, the um, organization under the Antarctic Treaty that is responsible for the living marine resources is uh, this year coming together again because scientists and naturalists and people who go there and see what's happening are putting pressure on them to reevaluate what the krill stocks are in real time. And so there's more pressure to uh, take action sooner because there's more people that are watching what's going on because people have become intrigued with the Southern Ocean. Just two, just two minutes. In your time when you come back to the Cape, are you noticing changes due to climate change on Cape Cod when you come back? Of course, you know the the biggest change is of course the um the the, the sharks that are here. You know, I mean the waters have warmed up. When you enough. left there weren't sharks when, who came Well, back. they were just, you know, so I remember that the sharks coming and getting the gray seals. So this is my understanding of this what's happened here and um certainly there are people who are far more versed in this than I am, but when I first got here it, Back in 1984, that was the crash of the cod industry. Remember? I mean, that was the very the end. I remember seeing codfish bones on the beaches, and that's, that's done now. And the harbor seals then seem to have been replaced by these larger seals as the larger fish, the striped bass, came in that kind of were eating everything. They were sort of taking whatever fish that they could find. And then they are such a large fish that then these larger seals came in to feed on that. And now, of course, you have an animal that's large enough to entice sharks to come into these waters. So that whole cascade of effect from the crash of the cod, the warming of the waters, the replacement, or maybe addition from, of harbor seals with gray seals, has really changed the entire dynamic of the ecosystem on the Cape. So we don't know what the climate of hope is going to look like yet. We have yet to figure this out, the sharks and the seals. Um, you know, for each individual situation, there are people who are looking at it and working on it and trying to come up with solutions. And there are so many people working on so many solutions. And we don't hear about it in the news that much. You know, we, we hear the confusion and we hear the, the pressure to not have the things happen. 
But there's a lot going on that that is behind the scenes. I mean, it's a huge force, and there's no turning back. It's coming. So this is the climate of hope. It and we really have, is. We have wrapped it up. You're there right on the front lines, and you can tell us that as bad as things seem, we are actually trying to pull it together. We well, are making progress. next time you come back, we're going to do an entire show on Zodiacs. <laughs> Because okay. I just really want to know the intricacies of, of, of a Zodiac. Well, maybe we should go for a ride. Okay. All Sounds right. great. My guest today has been painter, environmentalist, and extreme wilderness tour guide Mary Lou Blakesley. I want to thank Matty Dunn for his good humor and tech work on the show. And after the show, he's going to get me a towel. If you're interested in hearing a lot more about Mary Lou and her presentation at Wellfleet's Preservation Hall, it'll be... Two days from now, Thursday, November 2nd at 5 p.m., and it also kicks off a new art peacemakers exhibit called Revolutionary Art for Social and Climate Change, Climate Justice. Uh, it had been an exhibit that had been at uh, Cape Cod Community College and canceled during COVID, but I've checked it out. It's a very, very beautiful art exhibit. So this is Ira Wood with the lowdown on Justice for the Environment, one interview at a time. Bye for now.